Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey dives into the topic of homosexuality and same-sex attraction. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. All right, so we're talking same-sex attraction. Now, this is a an interesting um, subject to tackle, especially in the church, because there are so many voices talking about this subject, whether it's in the church, whether it's in uh, the world, that there are a lot of different thoughts. And historically, the world had one thought, the church had another thought. Things are, there's an added level of complexity because now the church is even divided on this issue of same-sex attraction. And so you can go to one church and you may hear um, affirming language behind it that, that God is pro-same-sex attraction. You can go to another church and say that God is, is anti-same-sex attraction. And then you can go to another church and they won't even talk about it because it's such a controversial subject. And, and to be honest with you, um, it, it saddens me that we have clear Bible on something and that we as Christians were afraid to communicate what is clear in Scripture. It, it, it pains my heart, um, but it's really important that when we're looking at Scripture that we don't just communicate the letter of the law, but we communicate the spirit of the law behind it. It's really important. This is where churches like us who would affirm a, 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 an orthodox view of sexuality, that, that God designed a man and a woman um, for marriage and nothing else, it's really important that we don't come at this with fire and brimstone because that's typically how we come at this. Typically we come at this and we're angry about it, we're frustrated, we're, we're, we're angry at the culture for the way that they're treating it. And so therefore, um, up in pulpits or in small group settings, it's, it's homosexuality or same-sex attraction is not something that is treated with any kind of grace. Uh, but what you'll see, hopefully, is that the word treats it with grace, and that, that we should treat everybody with grace, and we should uphold biblical truth and biblical values. Absolutely, we should, but we should also give grace for people to grow and people to be um, in the process of sanctification. And so um, the two primary passages we're going to look at are 1 Corinthians 6 and our Romans 1. Um, but before I do that, here's what I want to do. I want to give you, uh, there's basically going to be five primary categories of people in this room who maybe hear this message. And I want to, I want to show you the five groups of people, right? You can find yourself in one of those categories, maybe a couple of those categories. Um, and then I'm going to um, essentially hit all five categories in this message, but I'm going to spend most of my time addressing one category. So let me go through these real quick and you'll see what I'm talking about. The first category of people hearing this message it is the Bible-loving, God-fearing Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. Category one, the Bible-loving, God-fearing Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. This is the person who loves Jesus very much. This is the person who is, is doing everything they can do to fight what feels like an innate desire within them because they uphold to biblical truth. But here's the deal. They may fail a lot. They may fail a little. They may have never even acted on it, but they have that desire. Somewhere in that spectrum of things, someone here probably falls. There is a struggle of same-sex attraction, but you deeply love and are committed 
to the Lord. You're the primary person that I'm going to talk to tonight. If that's not you, then you probably fall into uh, another category, which is uh, category number two, the Bible-loving, God-fearing Christian who is attracted to the opposite sex but has no idea how to appropriately interact, love, and extend grace to the first category of Christians. And if we're honest, that's where a lot of people fall today. Those of the church, you may not struggle with same-sex attraction. Instead, you may have, maybe you're attracted to the opposite sex, but you have no idea what to do when your brother or sister confesses this struggle or desire, and you deeply want to have the heart of the Lord, and you deeply want to be able to minister to them, but you're just kind of at a loss. And so, though I am ministering to the first category of people primarily, if you find yourself in that second category, I think this will be really helpful for you, because hopefully it will give you some language to help minister to your brothers and sisters who are struggling and hurting. Amen? Okay, here's the third group. The confessing Christian who has same-sex attractions— but either thinks God is okay with it or they just don't care what the Bible says. That's the person who perhaps attends church and says the right things. Perhaps they give their money. Perhaps they give their time and they serve, but they are openly and proudly embracing a lifestyle that God does not say we should embrace. This is not the Christian who's struggling. This is the Christian who's rejoicing in their sin. Right? That's a category of people in the church today. We need, we're going to talk about that. Well, how about the fourth category? The confessing Christian who doesn't think that it's any of the church's business to even be talking about this. I've had conversations with people, and that's one of the, that's one of the prevailing thoughts out there is that, hey, listen, it's not for pastors to talk about. It's not for Christians to talk about. At the end of the day, that's between a person and God, or maybe even God is removed from that, and we're going to talk about that category of Christian. Uh, and then you have the confessing Christian, this is the final one, who um, ostracizes, shames, and or hates those with same-sex attractions. Now, most of the time, they won't use the language hate, right? But you know the kind of person that we're talking about. You know the kind of person who maybe has the signs on the road that says God hates queers. We've all seen it. We've all interacted with those people. And that person needs to be addressed. Now, while I don't think that there are people in this room who uh, maybe fall into that category, um, it is, we're going to speak just briefly on that category because even if you don't fall into it, you know someone who probably does. And we need to address it. So those are the five categories. We're going to spend most of our time talking about the first. And um, I think this will be helpful for you. So uh, before we continue, here's what I want to do. I want to give you guys the play-by-play of your gospel-infused life. This is really important. There's some basic things that we kind of all need to get on the same page about. Otherwise, this conversation is not going to be super helpful. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you how your life should be playing out as a Christian so that we can all get on the same page and uh, we'll go from there. I'm going to read this because I actually have this written out, um, and, it's, and it's kind of lengthy, and, and I hope that you can just, you can lock in with me and pay attention. God knit us together in our mother's womb with divine desires meant to lead us to him, but at conception, sin corrupted us. We became slaves to every lustful and sinful and selfish desire we had. But God, in an appeal to our heart, 
made the ultimate sacrifice. He became a single Jewish man who the Bible says was nothing special in appearance. The creator of all lived in utter obscurity for 30 years, subjecting himself to every temptation like us, yet resisting so that at the right time he could die for the ungodly and rise again for their justification. Taking the punishment of our sins, releasing us from the slave master that was our sin nature and demonstrating to the world just how deeply he loves us. He didn't ask too much of us, yet at the same time required everything from us. What is the one thing we must do to inherit the kingdom of God? To apprehend this liberty from sin and death and be reconciled to the Father, we must have faith that he is who he says he is and he's done what he says he's done. What great news. In that moment of faith, our conscience conscience is sprinkled clean under the atoning blood of Jesus and we are completely and totally cleansed of our sins, seen as holy, blameless, and beyond all accusation. Then the Holy Spirit of God enters us and convicts us to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus, both for his glory and for our good. For we know that the wages of sin is death and that Jesus came to deliver us from death and to give us life and life abundantly. Suddenly, we begin to draw near to him and interacting with the Father and all of the boldness and security that our newly cleansed conscience offers us. Through communion with the Holy Spirit and the continual reading of the word, that seed of faith has been nurtured in our hearts and this wonderful thing takes place. We begin to fall in love with the Father of lights. We love because he first loved us. As time passes, our love and our gratitude deepens. We become like the one in which we hold to such high esteem. We may come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. It's not easy, and there are hard moments when our sinful tendencies want to rise back up. But in those moments of weakness, we remember that our friend Jesus is coming back for us and that when he does, we will be granted eternal life with him who loved us so and the residual effects of sin that so easily entangled us on this earth will be destroyed once and for all, never to tug on our flesh again as we spend eternity reaping from the seed we sowed in those first earthly years of our life. That's your life as a Christian, and that's my life as a Christian, and that's what the Bible says should be taking place in our life. And I say that because many people don't even realize how the gospel is supposed to work. Many people don't realize that we're supposed to fall in love with him and be conformed into his image. So many Christians stop at salvation, and they don't begin to pursue what's called sanctification. So many Christians stop at, I've been saved, God loves me, that's great, let me move on to my life and do my own thing. And we forget that there's this ongoing process called sanctification by which we are becoming like the one whom we love so much. That's a really important distinction as Christians that we have is that we may come as we are, but we do not stay as we are. And if we stay as we are, we may find that perhaps we didn't really come to faith to begin with. 
That being said, there's one more thing that we need to talk about, and we need to talk about sin. We need to, if we're going to ask why is same-sex attraction a sin, and is same-sex attraction a sin, and then how, what do we do with it? The first thing that we need to do after defining the gospel narrative is we really need to figure out what it means uh, to sin. Now, here's the deal. Um, what is sin? I'm going I'm to ask you that question. It's rhetorical. What is sin? If I say to you, hey, the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, what is a sin? It's a question that you may not have ever thought to ask yourself, to be honest with you. I didn't ask it for many years. I just thought a sin was anything bad that the Bible says don't do. And I kind of chalked it up to that. But when you start to realize what sin is, it makes a lot more sense. So sin, it's actually an archery term. You may not realize that. If you go look at both the Greek and the Hebrew, the idea behind sin is to, quote, miss the mark. And the idea is that sin is a target, right? Or, or there is a target. There is a mark that we need to be hitting. And when we're sinning is when we are drawing the bow back and we are missing the target. It's an archery term. So to sin literally means to miss the target. And so if I'm going to define what sin is, I have to define what the target is. I have to know what I'm aiming at. The target, let me just tell you, the target is, every, is God's original will and intention for mankind. If you ever think, feel, act, believe, say, something that God had not originally intended from the beginning of the world, that would be sin. God set up a perfect garden. It was sinless. He had an idea for how things needed to be run. He had an idea for how marriage should work and how community should work and how our language and our speech should work. And when we deviate from that, it's sin. It's not just, I'm, I'm, I'm going against what the Bible says. It's actually, I'm going against what God's intention and heart and will is. And so anything that is outside of that realm is sin. So then, and this is why this is so important, you and I, before we met Jesus, could care less about that target of God's perfect will and intentions. Before we knew Jesus, we weren't even playing the game of archery. Before we knew Jesus, we could care less. But something happens when you and I come to Jesus. There's something that happens called repentance. And repentance is the Greek word metanoia. And so many people think that repentance just means I'm turning from my ways. I used to do this, and now I don't do this. And that's actually not quite what it means, although there's an element of that to it. What it actually means is changing your mind. A metamorphosis, the metanoia, takes place where that which you used to hate, now you love. That which you used to say is good and you now realize is evil and there's a change in the way that you think. And so before you knew Jesus, you wanted nothing to do with that target. But now that you know Jesus, you go, oh, I want to try to hit the target. And now you're playing a game of archery. Here's the thing, guys. As a Christian, 
Our job and our aim is to pick up the proverbial bow, pick up the arrow, and try to hit the target. That's what we're going after. You're not always going to hit the target. You just need to know that. The rule, ultimately, is not how well you hit the target. It's are you even trying? Are you shooting at the right target or not? And this is where so many Christians, we, we kind of mess this up because there are people who have a proclivity for archery. There are people who perhaps have a proclivity for um, uh, uh, self-discipline. They're just naturally a little bit better at it than most. And we look at them and we go, oh man, you're, you're a better Christian because you're, you're hitting the, the, the center of the target better than everybody else. And the reality is that's not, that's not what God's measuring. What God is measuring is, are you engaged in the archery? Are you trying to hit the target? Are you aiming for that? If you're not aiming for that and you're going, I see the target, my mind's been changed, I realize that's good, everything else is evil, but instead you're going, I'm going to shoot over here, that's a really bad place to be. That's what sin is. So, then the next question, is homosexuality a sin? Yes. I know. Shocking. Spoiler alert. It is. Now, here's why. Because it was not part of God's original creation and intent. It's not the target. The target was man and woman. And anything that deviates from the target is considered sin. Now, here's the deal. Anything that deviates from the target also produces death. I've always wondered uh, why, I just remember, I pray, I remember I was working at Subway and I was just mopping the floor and I've, I've told you guys I'm like really curious and I, I often just ask a lot of questions because my nature is to be skeptical. And I'm like, Lord, why did you call certain things sin and certain things good? Like why, why, couldn't, why couldn't, I don't know, polygamy be good? Why couldn't homosexuality be called good and why, why did heterosexuality become sin? Right? And it dawned on me that Jesus actually said, hey, I came to give life and life abundantly. And the things that he calls sin are the things that bring a natural course of devastation, pain, and destruction in our life. And God loves us. And so he says, hey, this stuff, bad. This stuff, good. I came to bring life and to, and to instruct you in how to live life and life abundantly because I love you and you're my children and I want the very best for you. And if you look at everything that God calls sin and you removed the Bible from it completely, what you would see is if left to its natural course always produces some kind of devastation and pain. Regardless of what it is, whether you would say it's homosexuality or whether it's simply lying to a brother or sister. We all have watched sin take its toll on us. And so I ask you the question, is homosexuality a sin? Yes. According to the definition of the Greek and Hebrew for missing the mark, yes, it is not the mark. So therefore, it's a sin. Well, I'm also going to prove it to you by looking at the Bible. Now, this may seem really silly that I'm having to do this, but I promise you guys, there are theological camps out there in big mega churches that are going to refute what I'm about to say. And I'll tell you how they're going to refute it. We'll talk about them in just a second. But Romans chapter 1, I'm going to look at verse 18, and then just for, for uh, time's sake, we're going to jump on down to 24 and 27. I highly encourage you to read um, all of Romans, but it just read Romans 1 and the entirety of the chapter. 
He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Scroll on down to 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurities so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Time out for just a second. When he's saying he gave them over, what he's saying is he gave them what they actually wanted. At some point, God said, if you're going to go for this, if this is what you want, I'll give it to you. He says, therefore, God gave them over in, their lusts of, uh, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, they worshiped and served man, us, the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's New Testament, that's not Old Testament. It's really clear. He doesn't just say one word, he actually describes what's happening, that they're exchanging that which is natural with that which is unnatural, men with women and women with women. Well, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Okay, so stop. There's already... We're seeing that right here. Do not be deceived. In other words, there is going to be a temptation to not believe the next few verses. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's guy and girl, boyfriend and girlfriend sleeping together before marriage, okay, in the same category, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. So he's really clear here. He says, do not be deceived. Though you may not like what I'm getting ready to say, though there may be teachers out there who are gonna twist what I'm about to say, it is really clear, let me break it down for you. Idolaters don't inherit inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators don't inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuals don't inherit the kingdom of God. The covetous don't inherit the kingdom of God. He goes, listen, don't listen to anybody else who says any differently. And this isn't the only time he's gonna say this, but it is very clear. Now, I ask the question, is it a sin? And I think I just laid out a case for you that it is. There are people, there are theologians and there are churches Who would say, though, they get around this and they would say what Paul had in mind when he wrote this word homosexual was very different than what we have in mind when we think about it. And so right off the bat, that's a dangerous hermeneutic. When you start assuming what a New Testament author was thinking without using scripture to back up your position, it's shaky at best. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Just know that it's shaky at best. 
And this is what they'll say, that when Paul used the word homosexuals, he was thinking the context of um, pagan worship where specifically men were having sex with little boys on the altar in order to make sacrifices to please pagan gods. And that's what they'll say. Clearly, that was going on in the, the culture of the day. And so when Paul says that, this is what they'll say. He, there's no way on earth that Paul was thinking, one man, one man, deeply in love, monogamous, committed to one another, loving for the rest of their life. That Paul was not talking about that. Paul was talking about essentially what is pedophilia or promiscuity. Now listen, you can go listen Google the arguments for why God's okay with homosexuality. That's basically what you're going to hear. Now, here's the problem with that, right? They'll say, well, Romans chapter 1, they kind, of, they kind of just throw that away, and they're like, that doesn't mean they said indecent acts, so therefore it was, you know, the, the nasty stuff committed on the altars. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they'll go, that was more promiscuity amongst the homosexual culture and not um, monogamous relationships. Now, here's the argument that we actually, I don't, I don't never heard anybody else use this, but I think it's the most helpful argument, at least for me. We may only have three or four verses, clear verses in the New Testament that would say the same sex um, attraction with action is wrong. It's only a few verses. Now, I would say this, we also only have a few verses on tongues, and most people don't debate that. We've got like seven verses on saved by grace through faith. Like clear verses on that, but we don't dispute that. Now, we have a little bit more Bible as a whole and a theme, but the reality is there are things that we have little Bible on that we don't debate, but we don't like this, and so we start to debate it. But here to me is the, the single best argument for why Paul could not in any way, shape, or form be thinking this is only pedophilia, but he's also thinking marriage. Because while we only have a few verses clearly identifying um, same-sex attraction with action equals sin, we have entire chapters dedicated to marriage. We have entire chapters dedicated to how marriage is supposed to work. And never in any of those chapters does Paul or any other writer of the New Testament leave room for marriage being between anyone other than one man and one woman. Paul wasn't appealing to culture because we see lots of times Paul really doesn't care about culture. We see most of the time that the New Testament is, is honestly going countercultural, where women are being shoved aside and cast out like we talked about last week. What we see is, no, actually there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor male nor female. They don't care about being countercultural. Paul never, ever gives license in the chapters that we have on marriage for marriage being anything other than man and woman. Why? Because that's what God originally created. And so when you hear the fancy theologians come out here and they start breaking down Hebrew and they start breaking down Greek and they start giving you all these different instances where maybe, maybe Paul didn't actually think and, 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 and believe the same thing that he's clearly saying, I would just say, I think the overwhelming evidence in Scripture, front to back, is that God says, if you're going to do marriage, if you're going to do any kind of sexual act, it's between man and woman, and it's in the context of marriage. Now, I would also like to note that in that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he lumps that in, homosexuality, with fornication. 
And so for all of the pastors and preachers out there who will just kind of like not really talk about the guy and the girl sleeping together before marriage, but they'll rail on someone who's acting on same-sex attraction, I would just say Paul says it's all the same thing. It's all bad. It's all equally sexual sin. And what we've talked about in the past is that sexual sin is actually the worst kind of sin, not um, as a, it's a, it's an affront to God, but because it's got the worst consequences, because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, again, will tell us that when we commit a sexual act with another person, because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells within us, it's forcing the Holy Spirit into a union that he does not want to bless and cannot bless. So anything outside of one man, one woman, context for life, God's like, I don't like it. Clear? All right. So is it sin? I think overwhelmingly it's super clear that it's sin. Now let's talk to the born-again Christian who battles same-sex attraction. The born-again Christian who struggles, loves Jesus, but struggles. I want to give you three potential reasons that you may feel the way that you feel. Okay, now, I don't know if there's more reasons than this. These are the reasons that I prayed about, and these are the reasons that when I sat down and talked to the dozen or so people that I know personally who have struggled with this, this is what they have said. And so I just want to give language because you may feel extra broken or you may have no clue as to why you feel the way that you feel. I just want to give you three potential reasons that you may be attracted to the same sex. Well, number one, your circumstances. You live in a crazy, sinful, fallen world. And the reality is many people in America were molested before they were the age of 17, and most of them before the age, most of the people who were molested were molested before the age of 11. And if you were abused in some form or fashion, that may be a reason that you struggle. I have talked to dear friends who their first sexual encounter was when they were a little kid, and it was of the same sex. Usually it's a family member. And what psychology will tell you is that there's this concept called sexual imprinting, which is basically this. The first person who gets to you shapes your sexuality. Your first experience tends to shape how you view your sexual activity and your sexual orientation. And it is possible that simply because you live in a broken world, because you might have been abused, or maybe you were not abused, and you just grew up in this crazy culture that celebrates the things that God doesn't celebrate. Maybe you were a guy and you weren't into trucks and dip and beer and all the guns and the guy quote-unquote stuff, but instead you were into fashion and cooking and people labeled you something that you weren't and culture said, oh, you must then be fill in the blank. It could very well be that some outward force of culture or circumstance actually shaped the way that you feel. It doesn't make it any less valid. It's still very real and you still have to deal with it. But that could be a potential reason that you feel that way. What's the second reason? It could be demonic. It actually could be, the Bible bears out that we are oppressed by demonic forces, that demons are real and Satan is real and they are doing everything they can to influence us and to derail us and to erode our faith. 
And the reality is there could be something going on with you that it is an outside force. It's not internal, but it's not culture either. It actually could be there is a spiritual battle going on for your orientation. Absolutely, it could be. Now, that doesn't demand that it is, but it could be. That's all I'm saying. Well, here's the third one. And this is where I think we miss it the most as a church because we're afraid to say it. The third reason you may feel that way is because you really could have been born that way. I have met with so many Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, and they weren't molested. They grew up in church. They weren't, they went to private school. They weren't exposed to the crazy culture of the world. But as long as they can remember, they've been attracted to the same sex. And what the churches will typically tell you is, no, 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 that none of us were born that way. That it's some kind of learned habit or learned behavior. And I gotta be honest with you, I don't see any Bible for that whatsoever. What I see is that sin starts affecting us at conception because we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. We're not born perfect and then get corrupted. We are born imperfect because we were born by imperfect people. And if I can be born with a proclivity to alcoholism, then surely you can be born for a proclivity for the same attraction or for for a same-sex attraction. It's all the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that that's a license to do something any more than my proclivity to alcoholism. If I'm born by an alcoholic, mom and dad gives me license to be an alcoholic. As a Christian, I don't have that license But it is okay to just say, maybe I was born this way. That's Listen, that's okay. I don't see any Bible that would say you couldn't be. So when you're talking to people who struggle and you love them and they maybe come out and they say, hey, listen, I've been struggling with this my whole life. What you cannot do is just go, oh, that's a demon. You just need to get free and let's move on. The reality is it may not be a demon. It may not be just kind of some cultural influence. It may be deeper than that. And it's not helpful for you to just be like, well, just pray for breakthrough. Because I'm going to ask you this. Put yourself in their shoes. Those of you, you are um, uh, uh, heterosexual. You are attracted to the opposite sex. Could you ever will yourself to be attracted to the same sex? Probably not. Would you say you were born that way? Now imagine if the tables were turned and somebody just said, yeah, I know, um, I know that you feel this, but really that's just circumstantial and you need to try to will yourself out of it. That's not very helpful. It's entirely possible that people are born that way. Again, that doesn't give a license for a Christian because guess what? As Christians, we get something called born again. And we're born under the new Adam. And we are now set free from sin and death. However, if you're in the room and you're like, I, I, I wasn't molested. I didn't get addicted to pornography at the age of like six like everybody else. I didn't grow up in a crazy culture. I just feel this way. Then, then here's what I would tell you. I think that's, I think that's um, what's the word? I think that's acceptable to say Yeah, you might have been born that way. Okay, so what do I want you to know? I gave you three potential reasons that you might feel that way. What do I want you to know? I'm gonna give you two things. Number one is that you're safe here. At Gatekeepers, you're safe. That you have the freedom and the ability to talk about it. 
to share with a leader, to share with a friend. And nobody here is going to look at you like you're some kind of lesser or, or more uniquely broken Christian than anybody else. Let me just tell you, everybody here is broken. Everybody here feels that same pull towards sin. Everybody here knows what it's like probably to struggle with any kind of sexual desire. It may not be the same kind of sexual desire. And you may not feel like church is a very safe place for you to talk about it, but I would just tell you, if you can't talk about it, you can't get free from it. There's no way that you're going to be able to get free on your own. We are called to bear one another's burdens. And so nobody here is gonna judge you. Nobody here is gonna look at you and be like, you are nasty, you're wrong. Um, nobody here is gonna second, second guess your motives or your Christianity. You are safe here. The second thing that I would say to you is that the only requirement, and this goes for everybody in this room, to run with us at gatekeepers is that you're aiming for the target. That doesn't mean you have to hit the target all the time. Nobody here is going to measure your archery skills. What we're going to measure is your heart and your intent. Are you picking up the bow and are you going, I really want to hit the target? I honestly could care less if you miss the target. I care that you're aiming for the target. And I will just tell you, Jesus cares most that you're trying and that you're aiming for the target. He's not measuring your success rate. Now, he wants to teach you he wants to teach you how to do archery a lot better. Because why? He's committed to you, he loves you, and he wants you to experience life and life abundantly. But the only time we have an issue is when you give up and you say, you know what, forget that target, I'm going for a different target. That's when we have an issue. So that's what I want you to know. Let's get down to, what I'm gonna call the brass tacks. What does the Lord want you to know? If you struggle with same-sex attraction, what is it that I feel like as your pastor that the Lord wants you to know? Here's the first thing I want you to do is I want you to change your standard of victory. I want you to change your standard of victory. This was really insightful for me. I have um, some close friends who um, I sat down with um, a few years ago as uh, the Lord was was dealing with this in me in, in some ministry situations. And I said, listen, I need you to talk to me as real as you can. Tell me what it's like to grow up in church and to be and to struggle with same-sex attraction. What did you need to know? What did you wish that people knew? What did, you, what did you need to hear from the pastor? And this is one of the things that I found out that um, though we're quick to say, and, and I even just said it, and it's not that it's wrong, but it is it's worth noting, though we're quick to say, well, all sexual sin is the same, right? And that fornication is just as wrong as um, homosexuality. And though we're quick to, if a brother or sister says, hey, I struggle with same-sex attractions, to put it in the same category as lust, there's actually a very different feel to struggling with one's orientation than there is for struggling with one's behavior. And what I found is when I was talking to uh, people, what I found was this. That the, that the heterosexual guy or girl who struggles with lust in the form of pornography, when they struggle and they fall, they feel guilty. There's a season where they feel wrong. And then maybe a week later, they feel a little bit better. And then temptation comes their way. And then they kind of block the temptation. They don't cave and they feel great. And they feel like they had a victory. That, that when temptation comes knocking at their door and they don't cave, 
There is a level of victory and godly pride to go, I, I said no to the thing that I really wanted, and I did it for God's glory. Hallelujah. And you know that feeling? You know that rush of like, I did what was right. I maybe even bit my tongue. I didn't say the thing that I, needed to, that I really wanted to say that the Lord didn't want me to say. You know that feeling? What I found was that when I started talking to people who struggle with same-sex attraction, they don't ever feel that. That they already feel defeated when the temptation comes because there's something innate in them that feels broken that the heterosexual person doesn't feel. That, that the heterosexual person says, you know, the enemy's playing on a godly desire that I have, and he's trying to twist it and pervert it. And so when they, when they shot block the enemy, there's a real sense of joy. I just won that the, the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, just being tempted makes them feel the same shame that the heterosexual person feels when they cave. That the very act of being tempted makes them go, gosh, I am so gross I am so broken. I love Jesus. How could I even want to be attracted to somebody of my same gender? And it's really sad, and it just it grieves me to, 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 to know that there are people out there who struggle, and just the very fact that they're tempted makes them feel extremely broken. And so when I say change your standard of victory, what I'm speaking to is if you have a moment of temptation to, to, uh, to have an outlet for whatever that same-sex attraction is, and you say no, you need to count that as a victory and a win. You should rejoice over that because it's not a sin to feel tempted in anything. Jesus, the Bible says, was tempted in all things. Jesus also was sinless. So therefore, temptation cannot be a sin. And so if you feel uniquely broken when the enemy comes knocking on your door and you see the person of the same gender and, you're, and your mind's wanting to go there and you start immediately going, I feel full of guilt, full of shame, full of condemnation, full of brokenness, what you need to do is go, did you act on it? Did you take your thoughts captive? And if you did, that's a win and that is worth rejoicing over. That is worth feeling a sense of peace and security over. What's the second thing I think I want the Lord, uh, or I think the Lord wants to share with you, is that he understands you. There is this sense in the church sometimes that because Jesus is holy and perfect and God is awesome and perfect in everything that he does, that sometimes it just can feel like there's this distance between him and us who are so unholy and so not perfect. And we sometimes forget that God became a man very specifically so that he could bridge the gap between divine and not divine and holy and unholy so that he can look at us and say, I get you. This is Hebrews chapter, oh gosh, I'm gonna go chapter four. It could be chapter two. It's the, it's the concept of him being our high priest. It says that, that, that he uh, became man to become our high priest, that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he became like us, being tempted in all the ways as we are and yet is without sin. That his whole concept of becoming flesh to become a, a, a high priest was to be tempted in all of the ways that you and I are so that we could come to him knowing that he gets us, sympathizes with us, and empathizes with us. So here's, let me look at this practically. If 
Imagine you've got some kind of sin struggle and it's in the sexual category. Let's put it in pornography, okay? Don't you feel more comfortable sharing that struggle and that defeat with somebody else who has the same struggle? Doesn't that feel more comfortable? Aren't you like, man, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna share it with somebody who understands and who gets it not somebody who doesn't get it and doesn't understand it. I remember talking to a student one time, and he was a young, he was a kid in middle school, and he was struggling with pornography for the first time, and he was like, man, I don't know what to do. I just, he actually kind of insulted me. He didn't mean to. He goes, I just, he goes, I, I can't tell my dad because I can't ever imagine my dad sinning, but I feel like I can tell you because I can imagine you sinning. And I was like, great. Appreciate that, bro. But that, that sentiment is so real, right? I, I'm not going to tell the person that I think is perfect all of my junk. I'm going to tell the person I think is imperfect. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is perfect, yet he made himself subject to temptation so that when we come to him, we can have full assurance that he's not up there going, dude, how the heck could you do that? I don't get it. Instead, he goes, oh, I remember. I remember what it was like to be in the flesh and to be in the culture of the world and then to have everything pulling against me, to have the culture pulling against me, to have my flesh pulling against me. And I remember what it was like to have the enemy tempting me in the wilderness. I get where you're coming from. And that should give us grace and confidence to approach Jesus, not to shy away from him. It says that he sympathizes with us. It's remarkable. So though... He didn't sin. He gets you. I promise you that he gets you. As Chuck Swindoll says, I, I quote this all the time. It's helpful. He goes, God is mindful that he made us out of a few pounds of garden soil. In other words, he doesn't expect too much from us. Um, what's the third thing that I think the Lord wants you to know? Jesus died to make you whole, not to make you straight. Jesus died to make you whole, not make you straight. Again, unfortunately, we can miss this as the church. Remember the first point, change your standard of victory? Okay, here's what we'll do. Typically, and I've done this in the past, in all honesty, when we think about the idea of redemption for a person who struggles with same-sex attraction, we think that complete and ultimate redemption looks like that person finding somebody of the opposite sex, getting married, having a family, and having the American dream white picket fence, good, happy, leave it to beaver home. And we think that that's what redemption looks like. And we think that Jesus died to make people straight, and we forget that Jesus actually died to make people whole. It's not about behavior, and it's not about getting you married. That's ridiculous. The highest form of redemption for somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction is being made whole apart from another person, same as the redemption looks for somebody who struggles with heterosexual sin. It's about making them whole with Jesus. And I would just tell you, if that's you and you're going, hey, listen, I struggle with same-sex attraction, but I could never, I could never uh, imagine that I would be married to somebody, I would say this, if you want that, I do think that kind of redemption is available to you. I've seen it firsthand. I've watched people who had zero desire for the opposite sex come to Jesus and slowly over time start to develop feelings, and feelings then led to physical attraction, and now they have happy, thriving marriages. I've seen that, but I've also seen the other thing, where they come to Jesus, 
Those attractions never change, but daily they die to themselves for the glory of God. And their story is they haven't slipped up in 20 years because they love Jesus. And they're fully content, fully happy, and they don't need a person to fulfill them. Next week, we're going to be talking about spiritual eunuchs, and that's the whole concept behind a spiritual eunuch, is getting to the place where you do not need a person to fulfill you, but Jesus actually fulfills you completely and totally. And I would just say for that person, here's what you need to know. You can live a great, godly, happy, fulfilled, and joyful life, completely full of redemption without another human being being attached to you via marriage covenant. Jesus wasn't married, and he had that. Paul wasn't married, and he had that. John wasn't married, and he had that. When you look at most of the writers of the New Testament, most of them were not married. The only one that was married is Peter, that we can know of, for sure. And we all recognize that Peter is the lesser of the apostles. Let's just be real. Dude's lobbing (laughs) off people's ear. He's doing a lot of stupid stuff. Jesus died to make you whole, not make you straight. So you need to change your definition of redemption. Uh, Number four, here's the fourth thing I feel like the Lord wants to um, share with you. Is that there is coming a day in this life where this will not have dominance and influence over you. One of the things that we can sometimes do is we just can grit our teeth and go, okay, well, one day when I die, this won't be an issue. And what I would just say is, If you keep clinging to Jesus, I promise you, over time, it will not have the dominance of influence that it feels like it has over you now. You will learn by grace how to master this thing. It doesn't mean it won't rear its ugly head. It doesn't mean that that temptation is going to go away forever. But as you grow in the Holy Spirit, as you grow in your knowledge of the Word, and as your faith goes from something smaller than a mustard seed to something as great as a mustard seed, what's going to happen is you're going to realize that this sin doesn't quite have the hold on you that you might think it does. And just know you need to have hope for that. I will just give you this. I I, I say this anytime we talk about sexual sin uh, because you guys are young. And sexual sin is like the dominant thing that everybody struggles with when they're young. Let me just tell you, part of the reason that you struggle to such a high degree is because you're young. You got hormones raging. There is coming a day in the natural where your hormones are gonna slow down a little bit. And that may not seem super spiritual and it may not feel like breakthrough, but it is gonna get to the place where things are a little bit more manageable, okay? So now you may burn with fiery passion. You're like, ah, I just can't look at anyone. You're gonna get to the place through grace, through faith, and through biology where you're like, I'm okay. Doesn't mean it goes away, but you just will. And you might have a hard time visualizing that day, but I promise you, when you're in your mid-30s, when you're in your mid-40s, you're not going to feel the same way that you feel right now. And that can give some level of comfort to know if I just hang on, there is a light at the end of this dang tunnel. Amen? All right. Um, The fifth thing that I feel like the Lord um, wants you to know is don't give this more power than it ought to have. Um. This is a really interesting concept, the same-sex attraction, because it's not really a behavior. Right? The behavior, we can say, we know for sure, right, that that would be sinful behavior. But the problem with this 
is it permeates everything that somebody, that, that people do, right? So if you struggle with same-sex attraction, like I said, whether or not you have an outlet for it, you still feel broken like all of the time. And it's because it goes with you everywhere. And the problem is it becomes your identity. And what we're seeing in culture today is that sexual orientation, regardless of what it is, is becoming people's identity. It's becoming the thing which they are known for. And what I would say is God does not know you for your sexual identity. He knows you as a son and a daughter. And you need to be really careful that you don't slip into the place that culture wants you to slip into, which says that this thing is your identity. It's not. It's just a struggle. Your identity is a son and a daughter. There's room for immaturity, there's room for growth, and there's room for your sanctification. But God does not look at you and go, you are a, a homosexual Christian. He doesn't say that. He's not looking at you like that. He's going, this is my son and my daughter, and they love me, and I love them. And I see the struggle. God, he sees the struggle. The next thing I would say, I, I feel like the Lord is saying, is that for those of us in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And, and that's more than just a verse. That's a lifestyle. How many of you, it's rhetorical, but how many of you would say that most of the time you are living as a Christian under guilt, shame, condemnation, and accusation? Most of the time you're not walking around with a pep in your stub feeling loved and joyful. Most of the time you're walking on eggshells because you feel like you've already done something wrong, you've already passed the point of no return, and that God's somehow frustrated, angry, sad, or disappointed. I would just remind you, all of you, whether you struggle with same-sex attraction or not, whether you fall more than you win, that for those of us who are found in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no room for shame for the believer. There is no room for guilt for the believer because Jesus took all of that on the cross. And for us to pick it back up is to say that Jesus, what you did wasn't good enough. I know that you died to take all of my sin and all of my punishment and all of my guilt and all of my shame, but what you did wasn't good enough, so instead, let me throw a little bit of guilt my way. Let me pick up a little bit more shame because I really need to add to what you did because it, I can't really be forgiven unless I feel guilt and shame over it, and that's wrong. For those of us in Christ, there is no condemnation. And then number seven, this is the, the final uh, the final word that I thought like the Lord's given to you, we'll say this often around here, if you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. And as Christians, we need to remember that it's not about knocking, out, knocking it out of the park all the time. It's not about having awesome behavior all the time. The mark of a Christian is somebody who endures and refuses to quit so that means if you're in the boxing ring and you're getting beat up by your sin and you're getting beat up by the enemy and you're getting beat up by the culture, the measure of a Christian is not how well you're winning that fight. The, the, the mark of a Christian ultimately is are you refusing to give up? Are you getting beat up? You're in the corner, but you don't throw in the towel. And what you'll find is that if you don't quit, and you resist the devil, he will flee. It's one of my favorite forms of spiritual warfare. When we think of spiritual warfare, what do we think of? Fasting, prayer, reading our Bibles? The Bible says this, if we resist the devil, he will flee. That was 
one of Jesus' primary methods of warfare, and that's one of our primary methods of warfare. Sometimes we have to hunker down, we have to resist, and we just have to endure, knowing that eventually there will be some reprieve. I promise, if you don't quit, you win. So we're going to wrap up. I'm going to give, um, what do I have? I've got five statements, essentially, that I want to give um, specifically to all, I want to make sure we're hitting all those first those five categories that I shared with at the beginning. Um, to the confessing Christian who has same-sex attractions but thinks either that God is okay with it or they don't care what God says. I would just remind you that our mark, our standard of Christianity is that God has the final say-so over us. He's not just the Father, he's also the Lord. And he gets to decide how we live our life, and he gets to decide how we think about things, and he gets to decide what's right and wrong, not us. And it's a really dangerous place when you get to a place when you go, I know that the Bible says this, but I don't really care, I'm going to live my own life. And, and I would actually say that if that's you, the Bible would bear out that you might actually not be a Christian. And so you probably need to get with the Lord. You probably need to wrestle. But what I will tell you is that the Bible has full authority to tell you how to live your life. Not me, the Bible. To the Bible-loving, God-fearing Christian who's attracted to the opposite sex but has no idea how to appropriately, uh, appropriately interact, love, and extend grace to the Christians who do struggle, what I would just say to you, um, and, and this is from conversations with people, um, if somebody confesses to you, don't, don't treat them any different. And I realize that's the temptation. You don't need to second guess and do a play-by-play and, a, uh, uh, and rewind your history with that person and go, okay, um, were, they, were they hitting on me? Were they, um, were they thinking something when they said this? Did this line maybe mean something? Don't do that. It's not helpful. Don't shy away from them and don't treat them any different. You need to treat them as a brother and a sister in the Lord who's struggling. And on that same token, I will just tell you this. I've actually failed at this because I've had people, again, who are very dear to me who have come out and said, hey, listen, this is something that I've struggled with. And here's what I did. I didn't treat them any differently. I just swept it under the rug and act like they didn't say anything. I thought that was the right thing to do. I wasn't trying to like, make them feel weird or anything like that. I was like, okay, great. That's okay. God loves you. We're going to do this together. And then we never talked about it again until like six months later when the person pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, I confessed something really vulnerable to you and I was looking for help and you just kind of abandoned me. And so what I would say to the person who's attracted to the opposite sex, but you're trying to figure out how to minister and love those who struggle with same-sex attraction, if somebody confesses to you, they're probably doing it because they want help they want you to check in with them. They want you to be praying for them. They don't want you to just check out and act like it didn't happen. It's a big deal. To the confessing Christian who is attracted to the opposite sex but doesn't think it's any of the church's business to talk about it, I would say, you're wrong. Let me read this to you. Oh, gosh, where is it? Do I have it on here? Oh, yeah, yeah this is Paul. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 5. Could be six. I might have actually just wrote down the wrong chapter, but it's in there. First Corinthians five or six. 
Paul starts talking about sexual sin, and he talks, starts talking about, he starts rebuking the Corinthian church because they're just tolerating every kind of sin imaginable. There's a lot of confessing Christians, a lot of people not acting on it. This is what they say. He says, um, remove the wicked man from among you, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from yourself. And if you read it, what he's actually saying there is he goes, hey, I've already passed judgment on these people who are doing these really atrocious things and they're proud about it. He goes, you need to deal with it because judgment begins in the house of God. And so if you think that we shouldn't be talking about it, Paul thinks we should be talking about it. Jesus thinks we should be talking about it. So that's why we're talking about it. And then lastly, to the confessing Christian who ostracizes, shames, uh, and or hates those with same-sex attraction, um, the Lord is going to deal with you. And that's not going to be fun. God doesn't do oppression. God doesn't do bullying. God doesn't ostracize people. He came down to die for enemies, and that's what we do. He loved his enemies so much that he died for them. He didn't ostracize them. He didn't shame them. As a matter of fact, when the very people who were doing that to him threw him up on the cross, what did he say? Forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And I would just tell you, there is no room for that. And if you see somebody acting accordingly to any kind of people group, you need to call them out. I'm telling you right now, if you see that in gatekeepers, you call them out, you tell me, I'm gonna call them out, we're gonna have words. Because I would so much rather have the immature Christian who's struggling but loves Jesus than the Christian who may not be struggling and have really good behavior, but they're a complete and total jerk. That person then leave. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.